Welcome, everyone, to Community Justice Talks. I'm your host, Molly Rowan-Leach, and, of course, that was Brenda Lee with Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. And before that, a little Cajun sound, Christmas music from Cheryl Cormier and Cajun Sounds. That tune was called St. Nicholas. Wanting to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and if you're just joining us, today's show is one to stick around for, and we're about to embark on a dialogue with Dr. Michael J. Gilbert, who, uh, as I mentioned before, is the executive director of the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. So in just a moment, I'm going to be introducing him, but I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on this program are those of my own and or my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the KHEN staff, volunteers, or board of directors. You're tuned in to KHEN LP Salida. That's 106.9 FM, KHEN.org, streaming online, and you can find podcasts there as well of our great interviews. We're in the middle of a stream of interviews on the topic of the current state of justice in our nation. And today's topic, of course, is going to include responding from a restorative lens as well as a restorative system. And who better to talk about that with than Dr. Gilbert. So just a a little bit about him. Uh, Dr. Gilbert is an associate professor of criminal justice at UTSA and currently interim chair of the Department of Criminal Justice. His research interests focus on restorative and community justice, violence, white-collar and corporate crime, prison privatization, and drug control policy. He also directs the Office of Community and Restorative Justice with the Center for Policy Studies at UTSA. In 2009, he founded the Section on Restorative and Community Justice within the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences and served as its first chair from 2009 to 11. In 2011, during the third National Conference on Restorative Justice at Campbell University, he was asked by the organizers to lead formation of a new professional association to serve as the parent organization for the biannual National Conference. The National Association of Community and Restorative Justice, NACRJ, was established during the fourth National Conference on Restorative Justice just last year, excuse me, um, on June 21st of 2013, um, and is nearing the first anniversary of its founding. And actually, we've passed that now. It's about a year and a half old, which is fantastic. Uh, The NACRJ now serves as the parent organization of the National Conference on Community and Restorative Justice, and Dr. Gilbert serves as the volunteer executive director of the association. The fifth National Conference on Community and Restorative Justice, coming up in June, June 1 through 3rd of 2015, is being planned, and it will be held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida has a great lineup of speakers, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that today with Dr. Gilbert. He has over 44 years of experience combined in corrections and criminal justice, as well as a trainer, consultant, and researcher. And during that time, he has published widely in academic and practitioner outlets on topics related to justice policy. He also has served as an adjunct instructor and consultant to the National Academy of Corrections 
and the National Institute of Corrections. He holds a Ph.D. in public administration with an emphasis in criminal justice from Arizona State University. So without further ado, just a warm welcome to you, Dr. Gilbert. It's so great to have you here with us today on Community Justice Talks. Well, thank you very much for asking me to join you. So why don't we start out... It's kind of, uh, I think, compelling for people to hear the story as to how, how folks get involved specific to what they're doing now, which, as I've mentioned quite a few times, you are the executive director of the NACRJ. So give us a little background on what brought you into this field and what compels you to serve in the way you do. Well, it started uh, about 15 years ago when I was working with a colleague here at uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio, and he was a good friend of mine for a number of years, and he had gotten into um, or an interest in and restorative practices and had been talking to me, and, and for a number of years, probably two or three years as he, we had these dialogues, I sort of didn't get it and, and uh, didn't quite understand it, and then gradually I started to, to, to pay attention and to, to really understand what he was getting at, and I grew more and more interested at that time. And then uh, in 2001, he had persuaded me to go to a uh, training session that was operated by the uh, National Institute of Corrections and uh, our National Institute of Justice up in Canandaigua, New York. It just so happened that, uh, that that was the week of September 11, 2001. And it was moving and powerful uh, you know, thing that happened to everybody across the United States because of the terrorist attacks because for him and I, because we were in a, in a, in a training session in the middle of New York um, during that week, and uh, three or four members of that group lost family members that day. And uh, he and I you know, talked many hours, and on our way back, we decided that we were going to devote the rest of our professional careers to trying to make... Uh, uh, the United States and particularly Texas at the time, because he and I were in Texas, a much more just society based on the principles of restorative and community justice, or broadly speaking, relational concepts of justice. And um, and so we set out to do that. And mm-hmm. then gradually we made progress here in Texas with uh, some laws that were passed and, and uh, some training programs that were started to be delivered, but we realized very quickly that we needed a much broader platform for these kinds of things, and we started to plan the first national conference uh, that was held in Texas. It was held in 2007 at Shriner University, and uh, we had about 250, 300 people show up from all over the country, in fact, in fact, uh, all over the world for that particular conference, uh, and then he and I started planning the, the second conference at the University of Texas at San Antonio, which was in 2009, and uh, unfortunately, John, uh, uh, his name was John Bird, he uh, developed cancer and passed away before the conference uh, could uh, could be carried out. And I took over as lead lead organizer at the at the time he had been doing the lead organizing, and I took over as lead organizer. And uh, from that point on, it has been something that has uh, come to my uh, point of view that that if we want to have a safe and livable society, we cannot do it with more criminal justice systems. We cannot do it with more courts, prisons, and jails. We cannot do it with more police. 
We have to do it in, in a more relational way that builds um, respect and dignity into the heart and fabric of our society. Mm. And when we do that, we, we will have a much better chance at having a safe and livable community in which, um, in which uh, people can thrive without, uh, without a lot of the uh, problems that we see today. Mm. So the NACRJ was, was founded based on, on some basic principles. One is, is that restorative practices and community justice practices are linked, that they are not totally distinct. They are separate, but they're linked. They're linked on a common shared set of values that um, both, both, um, both ways of looking at the world and ways of dealing with problems um, uh, work, uh, work to address those problems by uh, using dialogue, respect, dignity, and trying to uh, trying to address the real problems that are there, mm-hmm. and and so we saw that those two things had to be related, and we created the association to bring those two ideas together. Um, the vision behind the association is is that it's um, it's a vehicle to provide resources and services and uh, facilitation to the development of a more just and equitable society using these ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, from our standpoint. We have to we have to understand that people people harm one another, and when they harm one another, there's a process of healing that can occur through restorative practices. But they also live in neighborhoods and communities, mm-hmm. and, and their actions harm those neighborhoods. And in fact, the neighborhoods themselves can harm the people who live there by the way that they're structured. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're going to have peaceful communities, you've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that means you've got to deal with the individuals, and you have to deal with the community. And you cannot separate those two. Have we overlooked that seriously in the past, and perhaps even still currently? Um, I, I heard you say that restorative justice recognizes that communities are impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so much respect for for the robust, um, you know, over four decades work that you have done within the system itself, and I'm wondering. How did we overlook? It sounds like we did overlook communities and 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 victims themselves in um, in doing justice. Yeah, we we have overlooked both of those. We've overlooked both communities and victims. Uh, we tended to think simplistically about the problems that we face by thinking that more laws, more courts, more prisons, and more jails were in fact the route to public uh, to a safe public space. Those are not the route to the safe public space. Those are reactive responses to the problems that we have, but they do not produce a safe public space. What produces a safe public space is where you and I have a relationship with one another as citizens, and we agree to share that space and respect one another's differences. One another's differences, and you cannot do that very easily if we're not talking to each other, if we're not sharing the the space that we live in a meaningful way that that is respectful to everybody. Mm-hmm. And and community justice seeks to do that. What do you think are some of the top misconceptions about restorative justice? Well, one people think that it's one is that many people think that we're only talking about offenders. And uh, and and the irony of that is is that restorative practices is actually victim centered. So so they have it absolutely mm-hmm. dead wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the goal is the goal is to heal from a restorative justice practice uh, from a restorative justice perspective. The goal is to heal victims first. Mm-hmm. But the 
the act of helping to heal victims allows offenders an opportunity to make amends and to heal themselves through that process. I have worked with offenders for many, many years, and many are quite self-centered in terms of the way they look at the world. But um, uh, they and they have uh, they have objectified, if you will, the victim. And when you actually have a dialogue in which a victim gets to ask the questions that they want answered from the from a person who either harmed them or harmed their family or harmed their property, or is someone who is like that, okay, in a in sort of a surrogate kind of setting, what happens is is, is that victims begin to heal. They get their answers. They get answers to their questions. They begin to. They are able to tell their story directly to either someone who harmed them or someone who's quite similar to that. And uh, and they also get to hear the story of the person who did that. And it's in that sharing. It's in that dialogue that justice is found. And it's a lasting justice. It's not. It's not a justice that is here today and gone tomorrow. It tends to be quite lasting because it's profoundly influencing on both sides of that issue. And so we, we, really, have, we really have lost um, this way of thinking because this was a very traditional way of thinking for centuries in human history. But we have lost our way when we established the nation state. And all of a sudden, justice was defined as something that the, the government did on behalf of the people as opposed to uh, allowing people to find ways to resolve these problems on their own. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I'm wondering also if if you might uh, have comment on the topic of forgiveness as it applies to restorative justice. Is is that possibly another misconception that people have that that restorative justice is a synonym for forgiveness? Yeah, that that is that is a. Um, um, uh, a misunderstanding. Forgiveness is never a goal of restorative practice. It is something that may happen, um, but what we really want is for uh, the people who are involved in a in a particular instance to take ownership of that and to begin to to address the harms that have been caused and address the needs that victims have for healing and. Whether or not forgiveness comes out of that is a separate issue between the individuals involved, and it is never an expectation that forgiveness would be would mm-hmm. be provided. No, and in fact, quite frankly, if you go into a setting like this and you you let a victim know that forgiveness is expected, that's likely to harm the victim. Mm-hmm. So one has to respect that that is a, an individual and unique journey to each person who's harmed, and whether or not they choose to. Um, forgive the person who harmed them is uh, is a personal journey that they have to uh, they have to uh, uh, come to at some point, and uh, it's not something that that restorative practices uh, seeks. Now that said, it is good if it can happen, mm-hmm. and it is something that is not rejected if it does happen, but it is not a goal. Excellent, thank you. What about? Um violent crime uh, and nonviolent crimes. Is there a particular area that is more applicable with restorative justice or can it can it be um, used in, in violent cases as well? Oh, it, it certainly can be used in violent cases or violent cases of violent crime. 
um, the, the practical matter is is that it's used mostly in in uh, nonviolent crimes just because there are a lot more of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and people have a harder time sort of understanding how it might be used with violent crimes. But it, restorative practices can be used just about anywhere where people can come together. In terms of, in terms of uh, a pretrial setting, that would probably only be offered as an option in a pre-tri- for a pretrial diversion, would only be offered in cases of, of relatively minor fe- uh, felony crimes and, and perhaps most misdemeanor crimes. But if there were a case that's a violent offense, chances are it's going to be processed through the traditional justice system for um, uh, for a trial with a trial of some form, and uh, and if there is a restorative process involved, it'll probably be either either at sentencing or post conviction restorative process where uh, it takes place perhaps in a prison while the individual's incarcerated or perhaps pre-release before they're released uh, in preparation for coming out of prison, things like that. It's, but it, in, in all of those cases, it's, it's victim-driven. In all of those cases, it is up to the victim to decide whether or not they want to explore these options rather than the offender. Mm-hmm. And in, in short, what we're doing here is, and what's being done, is to empower the victim uh, uh, when they were disempowered as a result of uh, the crime that was committed against them. I'd, I'd like to go back to your website for just a moment. That's nacrj.org. Um, the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice employs principles of social and restorative justice seeking transformation in the ways justice questions are addressed. It promotes effective forms of justice that are equitable, sustainable, and socially constructive. NACRJ serves as the parent organization for the biannual National Conference on Restorative Justice and provides members with information resources applicable to restorative and community justice theory and practice. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Michael Gilbert, who is the executive director of the NACRJ. Welcome. This is Community Justice Talks. You're listening to KHENLP Salida 106. Point nine FM on the dial, khen.org, streaming online. Now, Michael, um, I'd love to talk about Shaping Justice for the 21st Century, which is your uh, biannual conference that I just made mention of. And that's coming up just around the corner in June of this next year. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the conference? And uh, I'm sure there's going to be quite an agenda um, for this coming one, given all the current events and uh uh, things seem to be building up in um, our collective understanding that this may be a viable solution for our systems, uh, that is, restorative justice. Well, let, let, me, let me start by saying that most people who look at justice systems critically uh-huh. understand that the, the ways we have thought about justice in the past um, have been uh, counterproductive, expensive, uh, and in many cases, in many cases, creating a lot of social harm that's in our society, just because of the way we have uh, addressed these issues. And, and, and to put it to put it mildly, justice for the 21st century cannot be more of the same. It has to be something quite different than that. Uh, just in the state of Texas, here, for example, we have um, we're not we're not shy at locking people up. And uh, we had, 
I think, the second largest system in the, in the country. And um, for the last eight years, we have not built one new prison, and we have closed two. This is a remarkable change for transition. But the reason why it's a remarkable transition is because both political parties have realized that the traditional ways of thinking about justice are not working, are not likely to ever work, and if we are going to do something that is effective, we're going to have to change the way we think about things substantially. And this is where the association comes in because what we're trying to do is to provide a different vision of what justice is, what it means, and how we get it. Mm-hmm. And we, we categorically suggest to people that, that re- traditional criminal justice work, and I've worked in it for years. Right. I, I don't have any problem with I mean, I'm on two, two police uh, department advisory councils. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to two meetings for two different police departments. Okay. So um, I don't have any problem with good policing. I want good policing to occur, and we want, we want that to occur in American society. But we also right. realize that, that those systems in and of themselves are not very effective at doing much of anything that, that prevents. It does things that react. So our association is, is aimed at, at trying to move our society from a, from a reactive one to mm-hmm. one that's oriented toward proactive prevention. And the justice for the 21st century is one in which we understand that justice is community-driven, that it is not driven by uh, or, uh, the criminal justice hierarchical structures and the organizational structures of the justice system, that community safety is, in fact, how you and I live together. It is how we understand one another. It's our ability to see our differences and respect those differences and still get along and still work together to better our communities. And that's where, that's where justice really is. Justice is interpersonal. Justice is how we treat one another. Um, and when we start to think in these ways, all of a sudden there's a whole lot less need for traditional reactive justice um, that's, that we've, we've overly relied on. So our association is trying to shape the way that we re, you know, sort of rethink that. And our conference coming up in June is aimed uh, very clearly on, on, um, on these kinds of justice questions. The theme for this particular conference has to do with uh, building sust- safe and sustainable communities and how we do that. The theme for the previous uh, conference, which was in 2013, was on race and restorative justice. Um, we, are, we are about trying to address the 800-pound gorilla questions right. that, we, that confront our society. And, and, and at the same time, do it in a way that helps us see a brighter future. Mm-hmm. Now, that conference is going to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, just for our listeners' information. And more information about the conference itself can be found at nacrj.org um, and the conference tab. Just click on the conference tab and uh, do you want to say anything about the special guests that are coming in from all over the world to yeah, share their uh, wisdom? Yeah, um, well, we have some featured keynote speakers that will be there. One is, is Dr. Cornell West, uh, who's a professor of theology, and uh, he's very, very well known. Uh, people have, have probably seen him on talk shows and uh, those, those kinds of things. But he's, a, he's also a human rights activist. He's also a social justice activ- activist. Uh, he's, clear, he's clearly a civil rights activist. So, so 
we have asked him to come. We've got uh, Jeremy Travis, who is the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who has written a remarkable book uh, that is uh, titled uh, "But They All Come Home," and it's it is a uh, book on restore reentry rather, and all the problems of people who go to prison, mm-hmm. um, and and what happens when they come home and they're denied access to just about everything that you or I take for granted, and. Um, because we restorative have, uh, justice really is um, something that can be capacitated from point A to Z, right, uh, within the process of what we call justice, whether it's... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, justice is about fairness, equity, and how we treat one another. Mm-hmm. So let me ask, if we have offenders who come home from prison but are systematically denied every viable opportunity to get their life back on, mm-hmm. on track, where does that leave us? Right. Does it leave us with a better, safer society, or does it leave us with a more dangerous one? And our point of view is is that it's counterproductive, that that what produces safety is not exclusion, it's inclusion. And from that perspective, then, saying you have a felony record, therefore you can't hold this job or live in that, that place or, or, get a, or get a Pell Grant to go to school, uh, increases the risk that they will reoffend again. And when they reoffend again, that means there is a creation of another victim. So from our point of view, we're, we're doing a lot of things that cost a lot of money that don't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, I also noticed um, special guests, uh, guest speakers, um, Sujata Baliga from the yes. National Council on Crime and Delinquency. Yes. And she's, also... She's very well known around the nation, and she's a specialist in restorative practices and has worked with restorative practices in cases of violence. Um, she's going to be leading a panel. Uh, that panel will include uh, Azim Kamisa, uh, the, the, the Kate and Andy Gromier, whose daughter was killed by her fiancé, um, and, um, and, uh, and, and Sujatha Baliga. And they're going to share their journeys um, in healing mm. after victimization and from various different faith perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so... So we have uh, we have a uh, Sufi Muslim with uh, Zim Kamisa. We have uh, the Gromers, and we mm-hmm. have uh, Sujatha Baliga, all coming from different faith traditions, but having their own personal tradition, per- mm-hmm. personal stories about how they have recovered after after harm. Mm, that sounds so compelling. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and, and I encourage uh, again everyone to check out nacrj.org, uh, the conference tab, as well as just the entire website, and consider becoming a member of the NACRJ. Um, and finally, I just want to throw out there too that um, Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles, which is uh, has a uh, pretty much a global base at this point, is going to be presenting there. Also, is that true? Yeah, uh, he's he's someone who's become quite internationally famous because he's a he, he uses circle processes in, in, uh, to develop uh, community problem-solving and uh, develop peaceful communities in some of the most impoverished communities in Brazil, uh, specializing, if you will, in the favelas. And uh, his approach to, to circle processes is a little different than, than what, uh, what we have come to know and understand as, uh, as you know, sort of restorative circle processes. And uh, so he's an innovator. And what we have done is we've, we've reached out to invite him to come to the conference so that our members and our, anybody who attends can, can, learn, can learn from him and make their own decisions about, about how they might integrate or whether they might integrate his approach to, to using circle processes. And, and what he's doing is what we see 
and this is this is kind of interesting because what what has been learned in, in let's say in Afghanistan by the American military was is that uh, if you had a council of elders, you could actually uh, create peace and you could actually create something that worked and got things done. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is some of those some of those military folks who came back from there with that experience were in fact police officers, and they have they have replicated that sort of uh, circle of elders or council of elders in in high-risk communities. And in the process of, of replicating those relationship-driven kinds of processes, what they find is, is that the communities are starting to stabilize themselves, they're becoming safer, uh, there's less crime, and there's greater understanding between the police and the community. There, and, and in short, less tension mm-hmm. that's there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a model that that could be used to address the kinds of problems that we've seen in the last few months with with uh, the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, mm-hmm. Missouri, and the death of Eric Garner in New York City, and the death of uh, of, uh, of the other young boy in Cleveland, Ohio, who was shot by the police officers. And if you look at the sort Tamir of Rice. common thread that runs through all of those, there was you know, a distinct lack of communication, a distinct lack of understanding uh, uh, going on. And it promoted, that lack of understanding promoted a tragedy in all of those cases. Now, that's um, that's where I would like to go with our remaining time today is to, as you said, tackle the 800-pound gorilla, um, of course, in less than 10 minutes. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, would love to hear your wisdom on how we might better respond and perhaps from a restorative lens in our communities to these situations that are escalating. Although I believe there's reports that violence is down in our country, um, it certainly doesn't seem that way when we look at the news and we hear of these terribly tragic things that are happening. Um, And I wonder how we can work together instead of further isolating and further finger-pointing um, there's a lot of that happening as well. Yeah. So let's talk about that if we could. Yeah. Well, you know, overall crime and overall violence has been going down since 1992. Mm-hmm. And it's now at the lowest point it has been probably in 50 or 60 years. But that said, there's still very violent areas of our community and there's still uh, crime-prone areas. The, the problem that we see with our justice system is, is that, is that um, they're, they're trained to react to these kinds of situations but they often don't act with, with knowledgeable eyes necessarily about the community, and that's because they're estranged from it. And if we want to promote both uh, safer communities and at the same time have better policing in those communities, then, then we need changes in, in, in the viewpoint of both the police and the community, particularly where the police view the community in sort of negative terms and where the, where the community view police in, very, in often very negative terms. Uh, that's because they don't understand one another and there's no dialogue going on. And, and where there is dialogue, it's police-dominated. Mm-hmm. They don't listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where you, see, where, where you see police and community relationships being, being built in a very positive way, it's when, it's when the police stop pretending that they know everything and they basically stop talking and listen. And when they listen, they learn something about the community because the real experts in the community are not the police. They are, in fact, the residents who live there. And 
And when you build relationships based on listening, what you end up with is a is trust. And instead of saying, "Here's what we can, here's what we're going to do," which is what the police usually say, they they really need to start off by saying, uh, "What are the issues that you all are concerned with, and how might we help you work on them?" And what they will find, which is what community justice strategies have found repeatedly over this country, is that the residents are not overly concerned with with the uh, with the with the serious crime, the, you know, they're not really interested in the felony arrest. What they are interested in is 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 changing the way their community feels. Mm-hmm. What they are interested in is is uh, is fixing the things that that make their lives uh, more difficult. And it isn't necessarily more arrests that are going to do that. It may be it may be you know taking an abandoned street corner and turning it into a youth facility and, uh, and and working with that it may be for example trying to figure out how you help the neighborhood church use its unused space in an, in an afternoon so that the kids have a place to go instead of hanging out on the street it may be uh, for example if they're afraid to if they're afraid to let their kids go to school because they get hassled by the gangs, it might be creating a walking school bus between their homes and the school and back every single day that's supervised by parents and perhaps a you know a, 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 a police officer who is walking along with them. It's doing these kinds of things to address the real issues that are at where the tire meets the road as far as the residents are concerned that then promotes peace and, and stability in the community and gives them the ability to to be able to say to the gang member who they've known since since the kid was five, they say to them, John, why are you doing this? You know, it scares the heck out of me when you're out here selling drugs and you're doing it right in the front, right in front of my home where my kids have to play and somebody's likely to come and try to harm you and they might kill my kid. They start having those dialogues and all of a sudden the young kid begins to see what they're doing in a different way. Now these things that you're describing all sound extraordinary and a step in the right direction and I'm wondering your take on do these these come from community citizen action in hand with uh, policy in hand with, uh, for example, what Mayor de Blasio recently said about improving police trainings and putting funds underneath that? Well, it certainly can. Uh, you know, the the justice system can't do the can't do this for these for for these areas or for these neighborhoods, but it can certainly help. Uh, so what I argue is is that instead of the justice system claiming, owning, and controlling, they have to back off, give up control to a certain degree to the neighborhood, and let and let the neighborhood drive the bus and define sort of what it's interested in, where it wants to go, and how it wants to get there. And don't just assume that, that, that just because they wear a uniform and have a badge that they have, a, they have a corner on what is truth or what is knowledge or what is right in that particular neighborhood. Uh, we've all seen many, many incidences where, where a traditional police response made things a whole lot worse. And, and the police have to, I think, change their attitude about how they operate in neighborhoods. A good start is something called community policing. It certainly moves them in the right direction. But community policing is often just a name, and what they have done is basically uh, 
try to own and control the problem directly from a, from a police perspective without really empowering the neighborhood to, to, to work together as, as a coordinated effort that is, that is co-equal. Um, and, and under those dynamics, the neighborhood feels used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they feel used, they tend to not pay attention to the police and they tend to view the police as, as oppositional rather than as helping. I want to just quickly interject here and point out uh, one of the members of the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice is an organization in Gainesville, Florida called the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding. And I believe they are doing a lot of work, just as you've described, to bring together uh, neighborhoods, communities, and the police force, knowing that uh, further arrests are not going to solve anything. Um, and starting to build relationships. Uh, they've made a lot of headway, I believe, uh, even in this past year, to exponentialize uh, systemic programming and community circles, uh, along with, hand-in-hand hand with the police forces there. So I just want to give a shout-out to them. I, I would like to give a shout-out, too, to the uh, p uh, police department in Austin, working with mm -hmm. Maryland Armors uh, group at University of Texas at Austin, uh, where they have... Um, where they have uh, worked collaboratively to develop a community council uh, at, at a street corner called 12th and Chacon, which was a known sort of uh, high-crime, high-drug area and drug, open drug market area. And as a result of building, building relationships and working in partnership with the, with the residents and the business people that were in that area, that area has become stabilized. It's become safe. It is now a much different place. And they didn't do it with an overt, oppressive, traditional uh, criminal justice approach. They did it with a dialogue orientation, trying to first listen and understand what it is that the residents wanted and then figure out how they could work together to make it happen. Finally, Dr. Gilbert, I'd love to hear from you, as I'm sure our listeners probably would. Um, what do you think, if any, tools, trainings um, that are that are currently being offered or in the future might be offered that could help us as citizens, um, as well as, of course, including police officers. Is there anything that we haven't covered in our conversation today specific, like perhaps nonviolent communication or anything else that you want to throw out there that you would recommend that we seek out? Certainly nonviolent communication is very, very important. And by, by nonviolent communication, what we are really referring to is, is non-dominating communication. It's where, it's where people are seen as whole people and are greeting each other as co-equals in the process of dialogue. And, and when you do that, it's fundamentally driven by respect. You cannot approach a situation uh, from a position of, of dominance and have it be respectful. It is, it, is, it is a co-equal kind of relationship. So training in those areas is really important. Training, in, training wherever you can get it in terms of restorative practices and community justice uh, 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 approaches and practices are, I think, crucial. These, these, quite frankly, are going to be the models of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, tend to, I tend to put my futurist hat on at this point and say that, that traditional practices uh, that we have used and relied on uh, too much are going to fade back in the next 50 years or so because they're simply unsustainable and don't work. But what does work 
is relational dialogue-driven approaches like like restorative practices and community justice that rely on, on addressing the problems. And those things will come forward, and they will become the, the primary go-to responses before we fall back to the traditional response. So when things don't work with the, with the dialogue-driven approaches, then perhaps we, 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 we use the more traditional approach. But the alternative is to stay with what we have. And to stay with what we have simply is destructive to our society. Uh, and I say that I say that from, as someone who has worked in and loved working in the justice system for many, many years. I just am also very aware of its flaws. And if we want a better society, we've got to improve our justice system, and that means it has to change the way it does business. Well, it's just been an extraordinary honor to have you here with us today. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Gilbert of the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. For more information and to become a member of the NACRJ, please go to nacrj.org and also click on the conference tab. We had a great discussion as part of our time together today about the upcoming conference in Fort Lauderdale. That's next June 1 through 3rd, 2015, The Future of Restorative Community Justice, Building Sustainable Communities. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilbert, for joining us.